Well, good morning. Uh, I have the great privilege of being the dad to three very talkative boys. If you've been around, you get to hear about them from time to time. I love getting to be dad to these boys. Uh, they, and I love that they're talkative. It means that I, I never have to wonder what's, run, what's running through their heads. They're quick to share it. It does mean that we've had to institute a rule in our house as it relates to mealtime. We call it speak where there's space. And it's because we're not always good at making sure that the other person has voiced it all the way to the end before we're ready to launch into the next story. And so we've, we've been trying to learn how to make sure that we've heard the last of what mom was saying or brother was saying before we start on our new journey. And so we speak where there's space because the struggle is when there's multiple voices going in different directions all at the same time, it can be very disorienting and overwhelming and hard to know where to weigh in. And so oftentimes that's dinner table conversation for us. I'm like, Ooh, do I, are we on that train of thought or this train of thought? And are those connected? Or Sometimes it can be disorienting. And this morning, together, as we are starting what will be a four-week series called A Biblical Theology of Race, in some ways, as a preacher in a moment like this, it feels a little bit like sitting at my dinner table. Because over the last year, the intensity in where we live, dealing with the conversation around race has, has been turned up. And we're all aware of that. We felt that. We felt it in conversations with friends or family members. We felt it in trying to wrestle with the nature of justice and what it looks like to participate in it. And all of a sudden, we can, we can if we're not careful, just be so awash in so many voices that it can feel somewhat disorienting and hard to know where to weigh in and how. It's voices like many of the podcasts and YouTube and, and books written, all the things that have been forwarded to me over the last year. Uh, as you think about D'Angelo and Kendi and Tisby and Morrison, or maybe you've gotten forwards from Vody Bauckham or Candace Owens or Herschel Walker or Brian Loritz or John Perkins or Tony Evans. You've heard about critical race theory and biblical reconciliation versus racial reconciliation and white privilege and white fragility and colorblindness and multiculturalism and white responsibility and and then you go, ooh, I, I'm not sure where to step into this conversation. And if we're not careful, it can be so disorienting and so overwhelming that we just kind of hang back and go, well, I'm just going gonna, gonna to play the cards right here. And, and I just don't know how to participate meaningfully and productively in this conversation. And so it's into that space where I want to invite us to listen for God's voice in the midst of all of the voices. So what we are doing is not trying to stack hands and say we're going to agree on every single thing, the way that we use every, um, every phrase or topic, the way that we define every term, but what we are going to labor to do over the next four weeks is ask God, what is it that you have to say from beginning of the scriptures to the end about the nature of race and the nature of humanity and how we are intended to interact and intersect? And so... There's a couple of notes I just want to lay as a groundwork as we, as we labor to speak where there's space, as we labor to create enough space to hear God's voice in the midst of all of the voices. Uh, one, both the content and the approach really matter. So the content is going to be crucial, and we're going to talk about really important topics, and we're going to talk about them in, in a way where the tone and the approach really matters, because to be the body of Christ is to carve out a, a space that's holy, that's other, that's different. 
And what we want to cultivate here is a safe place to have honest conversation, to be in, in kind of in the midst of coming to awareness fully of what God is saying. And so the invitation, my friend David Hill, who has preached here on several times and has been part of this journey with me as I'm laboring to understand and to wade into these waters more deeply, said, Jeremiah, just be really careful to make sure that you're, what you're cultivating is diversity of thought, even while considering diversity. Because he says increasingly, he's told me this on several occasions now, increasingly for us and our culture, the most difficult sort of diversity to maintain is diversity of thought. That real quickly we can say, well, if you don't think just like me all the way down to the bottom, I'm not sure there's space for you at this table. And what I want you to hear is we want to have the space to have ongoing, meaningful conversation and be a people in process together. Both the content and the approach really matters. What this means is that I'm going to likely disappoint or frustrate everyone at some point in this journey. Which as a people pleaser, that's a little bit hard at the outset, I'll just admit But I would love it if you'd show me the grace to go on this journey with me as I'm going on the journey with you and as we continue to stay in the conversation with one another. It may raise the question, why would we do this then? If we're we're going to to struggle with the diversity of thought, if at points I'm going to offend or disappoint, why would we do this? Are we just letting the tail wag the dog, letting culture tell us what we should care about? And I would say no, no. God has cared deeply about the nature of humanity and the distinctions within humanity since the beginning, which is what we're going to see. And this is a cultural moment where there is so much conversation and confusion. And so in a moment like this, this isn't the tail wagging the dog. This is letting God speak in a way that knits us together and gives us clarity to operate meaningfully and fruitfully in the world. Justice is part of God's character. This is his dominion. And so I'm eager to press in with you, for us as a family to press in and say, have there ever been a time where where justice as a phrase, as a catchphrase, is more popular, but, but for us to say, and let's root it right back down into the character of God where it finds its origins. That we would continue to maintain our prophetic edge as a church that understands what God means and intends when he talks about justice. So final note the importance of dialogue in this journey. The danger of, for the next four weeks, having the talking head up front with an extended monologue that I I think is important for us as we're developing an ear for God's word and all of this. But what I want you to hear is, I'm not asking you to believe everything that I believe about this topic. And in fact, if you do, something has gone awry. If you agree with me on everything as it relates to these topics, something has gone awry. The real issue is that we would enter in and together be submitted to God's voice and then have beautiful, healthy, respectful dialogue. What an idea. (laughs) Culturally, an idea that has evaporated, but I believe within the church we can recover. And so every week we'll have Q&A after the sermons. I'd love to interact with you. I'd love to hear from you. I'd love for you to disagree with me. That's healthy. That's good. That's okay. Let's have that conversation. And in house church throughout this month, we're going to have a chance to talk about this. And what we want to do is we want to enter with humility, open-handedness, recognizing that we all have space to grow as we go on the journey. So let's courageously and joyfully and eagerly press in knowing that we will meet God together in the midst Today, as we start our biblical theology of race, we're going to try to answer the question, how did we get here? 
What are the origins of race and what can we learn from those origins and the way that we still navigate this territory today? And what we're going to learn from Genesis 1 through 11, doing some broad theology and some quick application, we're just going to kind of sketch some things out to start this morning. And what we're going to learn is this, God's relational design. So God has a relational design for the world that we're going to experience together this morning. His relational design is fractured by our disregard for his word and our devotion to ourselves. This is actually how the fracturing of God's relational design initially started and the ongoing fracturing takes place where we disregard God's word and we are devoted to ourselves. We'll see what the implications are as it relates to race as we press in. Genesis chapter 1 verses 26 to 28, we see God's relational design. Let me reread those verses for you and let's talk a little bit about what God's initial design really intended. Sarah read it for us. Let me reread it. It says, God said, let us make man in our image and after our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. That phrase, and over, and over, and over, is an indicator. We'll pay attention to that. Verse 27 says, so God created man in his own image and in the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Three times that word created is in that verse, which is going to be crucial. And then lastly, it says God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So three times in one verse, right here in the centerpiece, as God comes to the place of creating mankind, it says God created them, created them, created them. If we were reading in the Hebrew, what we would learn is that there's something distinct happening here. That in the book of Genesis throughout chapter 1, there's two different words for creation that are toggling back and forth throughout the account. Bara and Asa. Bara means creating out of nothing. It means creating something that is radically new in the world. Whereas asa means to shape or to form that based off of what's already there, I'm shaping it into something. God only baras three times in Genesis 1 and the rest of the time he's asaing. Follow me? Three times he's baraing, three times the rest of the time he's asaing. He baras all things at the very beginning. He creates everything out of nothing. And then he begins to shape. He asses, and he asses, and he asses. And then he borrows when he gets to animals. Because there's something distinct about animals over the created order, that they have personality, will, that there's a certain sense in which we recognize that breath in the lungs separates their, their experience from just the, the animals, and the ve- or pardon me, the vegetation and the plants of the earth. So he borrows something unique in animals. But mankind is not merely an animal. He borrows again, and it's in this verse, and it's three times over, created, created, created. Something new is being injected into the created order when humankind emerges on the scene. And what is it? They are made in the image of God. Image bearers burst on the scene. What this means is that in the creation of humankind, there is something so distinct and different that God's going... All the stuff in the universe, I can't form out of it. I can't just asa mankind. I've got to borrow something. I've got to create something out of nothing. I am going to create something that's my very image bearer. Something precious in my sight. And then what he he invites them to do is to exercise their, their image by bringing dominion over the earth. And that's where you get that phrase, and over and over and over. 
You see, God's shining dream in his heart, his relational design for the world is a single family that is unified, blessed, multiplying and filling the earth so that his order and beauty can emerge, emerge out of the chaos. That's mankind and God's design. That's you and me and God's heart. A single, unified, blessed family that's representing his character in a way that order is emerging, beauty is emerging. Habakkuk 2 and verse 14, I think, captures God's actual shining dream for humanity. It says this, The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. The dream that God has from the beginning is that one day His glory will be carried out through humanity in such a way that they will cover the earth and His glory will be displayed all around the globe through His representatives. God's shining dream Two implications before we press on from God's relational design. Two implications as it relates to the conversation we're having. One, every single individual has equal dignity, value, worth, and beauty in God's economy. If you ever have the opportunity to see a fire orange sunset behind snow-capped Swiss Alps in such a way that you lose your breath and you can't, you have no words left and you say, oh, what beauty and grandeur. What I am telling you, what this text is telling you is there's something even grander than that and it's looking into the eyes of another human being. Barred created, distinct from everything else in the created order. This means that if we're going to be wholly human in God's economy, that we will look at every human being and say, equal in dignity, value, worth, beauty, you are God's image. I've got good news for you this morning. You're spectacular. <laughs> Unlike anything else in the created order. The second implication, if we're laying a biblical theology of humanity and of race is this. We are all a single family with corporate responsibility. That every individual equally dignified, valuable, and worthy, and we are all a single family with corporate responsibility that mankind was created to image God in the world and to bring order out of chaos. That we are responsible to each other and to the created order before God if we believe his word. That we have responsibility to each other. We are actually created to be family. What a beautiful image of a single family that is humanity, representing God's character so beautifully that unity is erupting, that glory is displayed, and that we say, ah, what beauty covering the whole of the earth. Yet this is not what we experience, is it? Something has gone terribly wrong. It's gone terribly wrong like what happened in the foyer of the house I grew up in in Westport, Connecticut years ago. I, there, my mom had the last remnant of uh, something that she had gotten from her mom who died years earlier. It was a beautiful candlestick. It was like the last treasured item that my mom had. And uh, she had given some clear rules in her house. I was the youngest of three boys and an, and an oldest sister. And the rule that was repeated many, many times was do not throw balls in the house. How many times did she have to say that to three boys pretty consistently? Now as the dad to three boys, I get it over and over. Hey, don't throw balls in the house. And I remember one day, my brothers and I throwing balls in the house. Sure enough, errant throw over the shoulder, direct hit on this beautiful um, crystal candlestick that goes toppling down, fracturing. 
That, that that experience, watching my mom's sadness and frustration and disappointment and realizing that something so precious to her laid fractured because her word had just been disregarded completely. That's Genesis 3. God's shining dream is a unified humanity that is displaying his glory, but then all of a sudden a crafty serpent slithers into the garden and says, in Genesis chapter 3, we read that he said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And as the woman begins to interact with the serpent and Adam stands by silently not doing what God had called him to do, which was to guard and to keep this garden, that if there's a dragon slithering in and speaking lies about God's character, that was Adam's responsibility. He stands silently by and watches his woman get picked off. And in verse 4, it says, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What just happened? The enemy, Satan, has run deep ruts in the way that he runs his course. He does the same thing time and time and time again, and it's the way he did it at the first. He comes and he says, did God actually say? He gets the woman to begin to question God's word. And then when she's on her heels and she actually misquotes God's original word because it's not deep down in her bones, hidden away word for word on her heels, then the enemy strikes. And in fact, he doesn't just question it. He disregards it and he says, no, 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 you will not die. You will finally be like God. And into this space, what is unleashed is the sort of fracturing effect that happened in the foyer in my childhood home that something begins to break apart in the hands of humanity. It's God's shining dream for the first family. God designed us to be a single, blessed, unified family displaying his glory to the world, but now what happens? It begins to to come apart. That where God's word is disregarded like a cancer unleashed that begins to metastasize is the sickness that is sin. Now sin, biblically defined, is not just individual acts. It is that. We have sins in us where we lie or mistreat, but sin is also a cosmic force that is unleashed in this moment and it begins to grow and metastasize and swell and take over. And for this reason... What was a forbidden fruit in Genesis 3 is the murder of a brother in Genesis 4, the fracturing of the first blessed and unified family. Cain kills Abel. Seven generations later, there's a man named Lamech. And do you know what Lamech says? I kill people just for stubbing my toe. He says, I get a little wound and I kill them because violence is growing and it's multiplying. It finally arrives in Genesis chapter 6 and verse 5. And this is what calls down the waters of judgment and the flood. It says this, The Lord saw the wickedness of man. It was great in the earth. Every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Do you hear? Every only continually. Sin always takes more ground than you think it's going to take. It's never satisfied. It is a force that devours and destroys. And when mankind disregards the voice of God, all of a sudden it begins to work through. God's shining dream fractures. You see, this fracturing always time and again begins with the disregarding of God's word. And as we go on this journey, I just want us to own this fact that the fracturing of the first family started there 
and the ongoing fracturing still runs in these deep ruts. That where we are unwilling to affirm the wholeness of God's word, we will continue to experience the breaking of God's shining dream. So just as a for instance, let me, let me start to lay something down that will create some ongoing tension and conversation, no doubt, in your house churches, and your relationships, in our community, as we, we wrestle to hear God's voice in the midst of this. I believe that we can feel this even when we start trying to define terms. Terms like racism. When we, as a community, begin to try to define a term like racism, many will run directly to a definition that will say something like, this is solely the acts of bad actors that have ill intent for others. That that is the definition of racism. Because racism is the individual acts of, in, of, of individuals. Whereas some will define racism, well, no, it's systems established by the power, by majority culture. In fact, saying some would even claim that racism is only possible for those that are in the majority culture because it requires powers and systems to be upheld. And then all of a sudden we can go, well, okay, we're in this space where even just defining the basic terms that we're trying to understand, if we're not careful, we can begin to come to them so quickly and, and not stop and slow and listen for God's voice and immediately jump to conclusions. So I just want to issue this invitation and this warning. The invitation is to, to move slowly and to listen for the whole of God's voice. The warning to multiple groups in this room, let, let me just say this. Let's beware letting a political bent inform the way that we arrive at our conclusions prematurely. To my progressive friends, I'm delighted you're in the room. I think that you keep the heart of God for justice and for the marginalized alive in the life of the body of Christ. Your voice is needed and cherished, but beware. Beware of having a hope in power and in systems that can deny common humanity and common sinfulness that oftentimes will produce a sense of otherness, of judgment, of anger. Beware of beginning to define the problem in such a way that there is always an otherness, always an anger that is engendered that makes it very difficult for us to all come together and say, in the same way that we are equally valued and dignified, we are also equally sinful and equally in need. And now may I say beware to my conservative friends in the room. I'm delighted you're here. You love and you cherish the scriptures and you want to make sure that doctrine is protected and that we maintain a clear picture of personal evangelism and conversion. Praise God for those realities. But let me say, where you begin to define things around hyper-individualism, saying that we are only the amalgamation of personal choice and effort, you do disregard to great swaths of the biblical scripture, to the recognition that sin does work through systems and structures, that there are unjust and unjust systems at play. You see, if you ask the scriptures, is this primarily a question of personal responsibility or systemic evil, God will say back to us, yes. And because of our unwillingness to move slowly and affirm all that God says, we quickly retreat to a camp and vilify the other, making it very difficult to arrive at God's voice. 
So the invitation is to say, let us not disregard God's voice based off of our proclivities, our background, our political bent. Let's hear him all the way out, even as we hear each other all the way out. It starts by not disregarding God's voice. That's the initial fracturing. You see, but the fracturing of God's initial dream isn't just disregard for his voice. Secondly, it's devotion to ourselves. And in our remaining moments, I want to take a quick look at the Tower of Babel. Look back with me. Chapter 11, verse 3 and 4, it says this. That as the sin continues to metastasize and swell and grow, it arrives in chapter 11 in this way. It says this, come let us, uh, they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. So there's great advances in technology that's allowing people to build in different and new ways. And they said, come let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Now listen, why is that concerning? God's initial dream and vision for humanity is spread and fill the whole earth with my glory. What's their design in chapter 11? Let's gather together for our own glory. Everything is upside down. Man's very design is to fill the whole earth for God's glory. And now they're saying, no, 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 we don't want to be dispersed. We want our glory. In chapter 7 and verse 8, God's response is this. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they may not understand one another's speech. Did you catch that? God's design is misunderstanding so that they would not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth and they left off the building of the city. You see, our pride and our devotion to ourselves layered over the disregard for God's word leads us to this place where everything is upside down and backwards. And God mercifully confuses the languages and the cultures of these people. This is the origins of people groups, biblically speaking. God fractures humanity in such a way where he creates, he creates ethnicities and cultures and languages and people groups in this moment. And the reason this text says is it's a merciful act. He's curbing their ego. He's curbing their pride. And he's saying when you have to deal with people that are different, when all of a sudden you can't fully understand one another, this will cause you to move slowly because misunderstanding will be replete in the system. That in fact, in this moment, God is curbing their ability, their unity around what is broken and wrong, and he's curbing their their pride and their ego in this moment. You see, encountering cultural barriers should humble us, should slow us. It is actually injected into the system because of our pride and our commitment to ourselves. And so God is saying, slow down. Don't be committed to yourselves. When you are prideful, you continue to multiply the fracturing. What I'm inviting you to do is to slow down and to begin to consider what it looks like to navigate in this whole new world. Brothers and sisters, in this journey that we're on, if we disregard God's voice and we remain devoted to ourselves, the origins of our divisions will be multiplied, highlighted. They will continue to spread and to poison our hearts. The invitation in a journey like this is to abandon the way of Babel, to say, this is not about me. This is about others. I am not most committed to my voice. I'm committed, I'm convi- pardon me, I'm committed to others. That we actually, if we are going to be a part of God's healing, God's process, we have to realize how damaging pride is to this conversation. You see, we actually have to be willing to be, be quick to listen 
and to actively consider others rather than to be quick to speak. I'll say this. Our current landscape, multiple ethnicities and people groups spread across the earth with cultural differences and backgrounds that lead to misunderstanding. This is the lay of the land because of the disregard of God's word and the devotion to ourselves. And it brings us to a place at the end of Genesis 11 going, what are we going to do? Like, this is the problem that Genesis 12 through the end of Revelation is is laboring to answer. The end of Genesis 11 leaves us with God's shining dream is upside down and we're going, well, what's the solution? What are we going to do? And what we find ourselves in still today is the ongoing process of engaging with and dealing with the brokenness of the system that our disregard for God's word and devotion to ourselves has caused. And so the invitation as we go on this journey is to continue to make sense of the way the story unfolds with an eye to the hero. The only way a story makes sense is if we understand its climax and we understand its hero. And what we know to be true is that this system creates a hunger for something different and more that ultimately only comes in Jesus. And I would like you to consider for a moment Jesus in light of Genesis 1 to 11. Because of the brokenness and the division that emerged, now God, separated from humanity by the chasm of sin, in that space, Jesus leaves heaven and steps into earth to begin to create reconciliation. And how does he do it? By perfectly regarding the voice of the Father. He obeys perfectly all the way down to the bottom. He never disregards God's voice. When confronted with the enemy in the desert, he says, did God say? And he, he, he quotes God's word. He clings to God's word. He only and always responds with love and peace and patience and all the fruit of the Holy Spirit. He perfectly regards God's word at every turn. Now, if ever there were someone that would be rightly devoted to themselves and their own voice? Would it not be this person? His opinion matters more than anyone else's because he's right. So often we come into these conversations and we care about our opinion most, even though we're not right. We're riddled with brokenness and weakness and the lack of wisdom and we don't have all the answers. But if ever there were someone that could be devoted to their own voice and say, would everybody just stop talking for a second and listen to me? It would be Jesus. But beautifully, pay attention. When he deals with those where he has societal power and authority over them, how does he react? The woman at the well, a Samaritan, he has authority as a Jewish man, but he encounters her with low humility, vulnerability, asking her for help, engaging her in conversation. And then engaging with the Romans where they have political authority and they as a people group have oppressed his people. Yet in that space, he treats them with dignity and respect and conversation, even blessing the Roman centurion and calling his faith beautiful. That Jesus in this place does not bow down to the structures and the systems alive in his day. And he actually cherishes and raises up the voice of those who have historically been the oppressor and those who have been the oppressed. And he treats them with equal dignity, value, and worth and doesn't demand that his voice be heard. In fact, he embraces weakness even to the point of dying silently. Right? He doesn't raise up and say, no, listen to me. He, he lays his life down silently. Like a lamb led to the slaughter. So brothers and sisters, would you, one, 
receive the grace of Jesus like that. Knowing that he was willing to fulfill all of God's righteous requirements for you and then to lay his life down for you to cover you over with love and grace for all the ways that you have been inequitable, unkind, the ways that you have not considered the plight of those who are struggling, or that you have carried anger and bitterness in your heart for the ways that have power over you, have mistreated you or, or overlooked you. That wherever you are on the system and whatever it is that you carry into this space, Jesus is the only one that can touch and unwind the sin of your heart. And secondly, would you consider walking in the way of Jesus? Regarding the word of the Father and then slowly and patiently and humbly and quietly considering the voice of others. In that space, we might actually be a part of God's beautiful dream being recaptured. This is what we want to be a part of. A blessed family that is spreading his glory to the ends of the earth. We need Jesus' help. And so let's go on this journey together in hopes that we will continue to experience that healing and to introduce that healing into the world around us. Let me pray for us. Father, your word is worthy of our attention and our affection. You have perfect wisdom and insight and knowledge, and we have such limited insight and wisdom and knowledge. And so we come with open hands, with weakness, with neediness, saying, would you meet us and show us how to be distinct, distinctly Christian, meeting one another with respect, love, and introducing something different into the world. Would you forgive us, each of us, God, for the ways we disregard your word? The ways that in so doing we can minimize or vilify others, that we can prop ourselves up and remain so devoted to our own opinions and thoughts. I pray that we would be a humbled people, humbled because of the love of Jesus that washes and renews us. We love you, Jesus. I pray that you'd be lifted high in this community, that you'd lead us on this journey, that you'd be working more of your character into our bones over the coming weeks. We bless you in advance for what you're going to do. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.